you guys will open up your Bible there. Uh, I want to read the, the chapter, and if you guys will follow along, that's how we'll begin. Revelation chapter 16. John writing again, and he's describing things that he's seen and things that he's heard. And God's commanded him, Christ has commanded him at the beginning of this when the Lord manifested himself to him while he was on the island of Patmos. He said, write the things down that you see and that you hear. And so John really goes through the book and tells us, hey, I saw this. I heard that. I seen this. Uh, I, I've heard that. And, and he does again. I mean, it's very specific. And he says in verse 16, starting or chapter 16, verse 1, he says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels. And remember the context from last week. If you look at verse 8, we're following the contextual flow. Uh, the temple had just been filled with smoke, the glory of God, and there were some things involved with that. And, and so John says, after that, basically, he says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Then a third angel poured out his bowl on the river and springs of water, and they became blood. So basically we have the, the second and third judgments there of the bowl judgments. It's affecting the water supply, but not just the salt water, but also the fresh water supplies. That's the distinction being made there. Same, same judgments just in two different places and, and showing the, the totality of it. And in verse 5, John again says, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Now that's key, and we'll talk about the words of this angel here in this song of praise, or these words of praise. But he concludes by saying, for it is their just due. And verse 7, I heard another from the altar saying, even so the Lord God Almighty, true and righteous or and just and your true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel, verse 8, poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And we've talked about that in previous chapters, how at this last battle there's going to be these three kings that come down from the east. And there's other passages of scripture in the book of Ezekiel 
that document and expound on this a little bit more. And when we get to chapter 19, we will as well. But for now, the, the focus is on the river Euphrates as a preparation for this, this final battle. And, and in verse 13, and it says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out from the mouth of the dragon and out from the mouth of the beast and out from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am becoming. Again, if you, if you have a, a red letter Bible or, or, or not, notice that this is in uh, italics. It's the words of Jesus Christ, uh, specifically the, the, the lion in this sense, the lion uh, that Jesus uh, returns as as a mighty as a mighty warrior, as as our as our, our great and God uh, our great Savior and conqueror and victor, and, and He says, "Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame." And they gathered them together into the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then, verse seventeen, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out from the temple of heaven and from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts and the city of the nations fell. And great, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And if you do the research, that's somewhere between 75 and 125 pounds. That's some big hail. And men blasphemed God. Again, here, verse 21, because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you, Lord, for um, the opportunity to worship you with song and to set aside the cares of this life, Lord, and to refocus and, and, and to give them to you. And God, to seek your, your revelation, your word, your counsels, your encouragement to us this morning. Father, we are all in a different place, um, but we all have individual and personal relationships with you, and God, you desire to meet us personally and individually, and I pray you would do that through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, last week, if we kind of uh, uh, move forward here into this chapter and look kind of in con connecting the two chapters, last week when we read and studied through chapter 15, we started to look at the last of these three sets of judgments in total that are out throughout the, 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 the book of Revelation. Three judgments that will come upon the earth during the seven-year uh, period of time, the seven years of, of, of tribulation. And in doing so, we specifically saw how, in chapter 15, we, we specifically saw how heaven um, will be preparing for this final judgment, this completion of God's wrath, this time for God where he will eventually say it is done, like we read. Um, and uh, this judgment, according to 
uh, 15, chapter 15, verse 1, if you look there, that's where it says that it'll bring forth a completion to the wrath of God. And this last set of judgments, these bold judgments, they're identified as the bold judgments. And, and in doing so, what, it, what we see is this illustration, this uh, um, metaphor that is being uh, given to us so we can see how this last set of judgments, that God's wrath in doing so will be poured out without any restraints. No mercy, um, no withholding. It's, it's, it's an outpouring or pouring out without any restraint. And this is exactly what is seen taking place as we've read through this chapter. And I'm sure you noticed that. And, and I point that out because it's much different than the first two sets of judgments that we've studied through um, up to this point. Uh, and, and we've previously read that um, these, these judgments up to this point will have an effect on a specific portion of what's to be judged. For example, when the first trumpet judgment uh, is sounded, the first trumpet of the trumpet judgments is sounded, we are told that fire will come down from heaven, and as a result, one-third, a portion, one-third of all the trees and of all the green grass on the earth will be burned up. So that means that two-thirds will be left. Two-thirds of all the trees and of all the grass for a time will be unharmed. And, and this restraint that we read about in the first two judgments or this limiting is evident through every one of the sounding of the trumpets. Seven trumpets are sounded and there's a restraint or a limiting that, that comes from them. And, and they're confined through that whole judgment. You see that no matter what it's being directed or intended to, to affect, it's only one third. It's always one third. One third of the waters of the earth one-third of the heavens, one-third of the night, one-third of the day. And lastly, we're told that one-third, as a result of all of these judgments, one-third of all of mankind who will be on earth at that time will be killed. But when we come to the end, after Satan has been cast from heaven, if you remember, no longer allowed to go there, and he turns all of his satanic rage upon the earth, the Antichrist establishes his his, his, his uh, uh, capital city there, Babylon revived. He gives the mark of the beast. He persecutes and kills all who refuse to worship. You remember that, that, that in, in conjunction with those things taking place, this final judgment then comes and there's no more restraint. And, 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 and what I'm connecting for you here is, is the reason why it's different now is because that this judgment, these, these bold judgments, all seven of them, are specifically targeted upon Satan's kingdom. Through the Antichrist, who at this time will have, to make, will have taken dominion over all of the earth? And if you remember, we studied through that, and that's when we looked at the ten horns and um, uh, the, 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 the League of Nations that will, will, will come up underneath the rule of the Antichrist. He takes dominion over the whole earth, and God directs these judgments upon that. Now, there's one last thing from last week's study that I want to remind us of before we, we look at um, these manifestations of God's wrath that we want to keep in our mind. And back in chapter 8, or verse 8 of chapter 15, if you want to look there, it tells us directly as a transition into this 
the, the, the actual documentation of these judgments or the prophetic account of these judgments is they're told that when the seven angelic messengers of God come out of the temple in heaven, literally the throne room of God with these seven bowls full of God's wrath, that the temple of God is then filled. God's throne room, which is described in detail back in Revelation chapter 5, is, is filled with smoke from the glory of God. So much so that no one is able to enter the temple until, it says, the seven plagues are completed. In light of this, it appears, as we talked about this last week, that during this last seven judgments that are to come, that God's desire is to be alone. And because we know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, it's likely that at this time, as I mentioned last week, that he's mourning and grieving over what must be done. So as we read about these final judgments, let us not forget, as we read about these final judgments, which are horrific, they're scary when you begin to think about some of the things that you read here. And as we read about these things and as we, as we digest uh, intellectually what we're being told and, and, and emotionally in our hearts, let's not forget the fact that our God is a loving God. That our God is a long-suffering God and a righteous God who must judge, as we see these judgments now intentionally uh, affecting Satan and his kingdom and the Antichrist and his followers, we have a God who must judge all who will not repent. And we're told that over and over and over again in this chapter. They will not repent. So as we look back to the beginning of this chapter, in verses 1 and 2, it says, John, again, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a fowl and the loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. <laughs> I have so many things I want to say. <laughs> And I, I just got to stay focused or we're not going to get beyond this. But this last set of judgments, as it begins, um, God sends, he says, a sore. And this sore is described as foul and loathsome. And, and Dr. Button's on the front here. And I just, I just can't help to think, those who are in the medical field, Cindy, you're a nurse, and other, I'm sure you've seen some foul and some loathsome sores. And... Um, uh, Isaac Kerr is a farrier, and, and, and um, Amy tells this account. She was sharing it at the, my wife told me she was sharing this account of how when Isaac and her were dating, that Isaac was, um, she shared this at the women's movie night, by the way. So if you want to know what ladies talk about, here you go. She was sharing how that on their third date, Isaac and Amy's third date, and you guys have been married for a long time now, so you're, you know, obviously God's been in it, but on her third date, Isaac comes and picks her up and puts his arm around her, and she's gagging over the smell. Isaac's a farrier, and, you know, farriers work hard around horses, and they kind of have a smell or an odor to go along with that regularly. But, and, and she's come to find out that Isaac, as he was working on a horse that had been shooed, that he was shooing, had an um, abscess, like, about like that big. And that abscess <laughs> ruptured all over Isaac. Well, Isaac, being young and foolish, didn't shower before he went to pick up Amy. <laughs> Hello, honey. <laughs> a foul and loathsome sore. 
But the thing about this foul and loathsome, and I don't want to try to gross you out, but the Bible is giving us a graphic depiction. And my mind begins to wonder, wander and wonder in, in this kind of things. And then God gives me these really cool graphic illustrations just right before we, we get to teach you. And so I got to share them with you, right? And, um, but they come upon those, it says, the men, and that's, that's, metaf- that's referring to humankind, men and women alike, those who have taken the mark of the beast. And again, we see the intentional direction of these things. And at the end of chapter 15 and verse 8, if you look there, these bowls, and this is important, this is key, that these bowls of wrath, as they're, as they're labeled uh, to give us an illustration of what they're going to be like, they're also referred to in verse 8 of chapter 15 as plagues, right? And when we look at the seven bold judgments, all of them together, we see that they're similar in nature. They all have a similarity to them in nature to the plagues that, that God had sent upon the Egyptians um, uh, through Moses when God was saying, let my people go. Remember when the, the Hebrews, the, the Israelites were in Egyptian captivity and bondage and uh, uh, through Pharaoh and, and God sent Moses in the to, to, to demand that, that his people be set free, and Pharaoh refused. And so God sent these plagues, ten plagues, upon uh, the Hebrew people. And in Exodus chapter 9, as we look at the connection between the two, here in the judgments that are called plagues also, and look back to the book of Exodus where the account of, of God dealing with Pharaoh, it tells us that the sixth plague that God sent upon the Egyptians were boils, boils that became sores. And literally, boils that became sores and covered the bodies, it says, of both man and beast. And when we consider sores and boils as an instrument of God's judgment, because that's what we're reading about here, and we look back and see uh, other instances of that in the Old Testament, when we take the whole or the totality of it, you can also look to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where the children of Israel were standing on the border of the promised land and preparing to go into the promised land. And God, through Moses, had half of the children of Israel on one side of, the, on, on one side of a valley and the other on the other side. And there was a valley in between. And God was speaking both blessings and curses to the people saying, hey, if you go into the land and you obey me, this is going to be a blessing to you. And, and God detailed and accounted for them what the blessings were in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If they followed his commands, if they did his will, if they were faithful to him. But God also, through Moses, at this time, spoke upon the curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed, if they rebelled against God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 27, and then again in verse 35 of that same chapter, God promised promised to send these same kinds of sores Specifically, sores, it says, that could not be healed and would cover their body from the sole of their feet to the top of their head. Now, even though the Egyptians had many sores, there's a distinction here I want you to see. Even though the Egyptians, were told, had many sores that would cover their entire body, God here um, says that... Um, it would be a sore, not many sores. And, and remember, the Hebrew people also said they would receive the, the curse of sores from the, from, the, from the sole of the feet to the top of the head. 
But here in verse 2, the word that is used is singular as it says sore, not sores. And since the sore will be sent to those who have the mark of the beast, it makes me believe that this sore will probably be in the exact same place where the mark of the beast has been put. You know, and we kind of think about that in light of our technology today. And some people think that it'll be a microchip implant either on the, 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 the um, uh, forehead or um, on the, the right hand. And um, I talked to you about that Applied Technologies was the uh, current leader in this microchip technology that did implants. And they had run into a um, glitch uh, in their manufacturing with the FDA uh, uh, not too many years ago because in, in animals and stuff that they were implanting this chip, there was a sore that was developing and it was causing cancer. So I don't know, that, that all may be just something that you can digest and think about. Um, I don't know if it'll all work like that, but it, it, it seems to make sense to me that this sore may occur in the same place where the mark of the beast has been put. Which, according to, again, chapter 13, verse 16, will be on the right hand or on the forehead. In light of this, we see that even though these final judgments of God are being poured out with, without restraint, they are intentional. And that's what I want you to see. God's intentional in that he's aiming at specific targets. Now, the Greek word for this word sore is the word helkos. And it specifically refers to an open sore or a tumor that is malignant in nature, which itches, weeps, and oozes pus. And without a doubt, this sore will come upon those who have the mark of the beast, and it will be a foul, and it'll be a loathsome thing. And I suspect that those who have the mark of the beast, and the reason why I go into this detail, is because I suppose those who have taken the mark of the beast at this time um, even though they will have, as we've studied through this up to this point, that even though they will have received a temporary benefit for taking the mark, not only their lives being spared, but being able to have the ability to buy and sell, they'll still be able to eat, is even though they'll have received a temporary benefit for taking the mark of the beast, there will come a time when they're going to regret it. Not just eternally, but here, God says, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret ever having taken it, and this sore will only be the first of many reasons for why they regret it. But sadly, it's evident, now this is where it all kind of comes to a head, it's evident that their regret is all the further that those who get this foul and loathsome sore will go. It doesn't go, their sorrow for having it, their regret for having it, ends there with sorrow and regret. And later in this chapter, again, if you look in verse 11, this is made clear by saying that that because of their pains and because of their sores, they will not repent. Regret, but no repent. Rather, they will curse the God of heaven, meaning that seems so bizarre to me, meaning that, that they know exactly where it's coming from, they know why it's coming, and yet they blaspheme the name of God. They harden their hearts against him, much like Pharaoh also did. Plague after plague after plague hardening of his heart, maybe even regret, but never repent. And the truth is, every time I read this, I'm amazed. And in this chapter alone, we're told three times that these worshipers of the beast, those followers of Antichrist, recognize that God is behind all of these judgments, but rather than repent, they blaspheme God. 
But, it, but as I take the whole counsel of the word of God and I really kind of meditate about this defiance in the face of God's judgment, it begins to make sense because of, because of passages of scripture like Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, which tells us this. It says, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same things that you will escape the good judgment of God? Or do you, it says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? Or 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, which says this. It tells us that godly sorrow brings a repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow, it says, brings death. The point is, at this time when God judges, when God's judgment is being poured out upon those who have made their choice, okay, keep that in mind. This judgment is unrestrained, but it's intentional, and it's being poured out upon those who have made their choice, those who have despised and repeatedly rejected God's goodness. That's where we're at. It's not random. It's not reactionary. It's intentional upon those who have repeatedly despised and rejected God's goodness. And rather than repent and receive God's gift of salvation, they have stored up for themselves, it says, wrath on this day of wrath. So, all that they're really left with, all they're really capable of at this point, is regret and worldly sorrow that brings forth judgment and death that they have willingly chose. The point is, Regret is all that they have because the opportunity for repentance, the time for repentance, the day of salvation has escaped them by this time. And we look to verse 3 as we continue on, and it says, Then the second angel poured out his bowl upon the sea, and it became as blood as is of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel, verse 4, poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became as blood. And again, even though there are these similarities between the bowls and the trumpet judgments, like I'd already mentioned, they are different in that these second and third trumpet judgments, as they looked at in, in a comparison to what we're reading here now, and if you look back to the second and third trumpet judgments, that when they're sounded, again, it's only a third, right? A third of the waters of the earth are affected, both the fresh water and the oceans, the seas. But here we read that the second and third bowl judgments, that when they're poured out, all of the water systems of the world will be affected. In total, they will all be polluted 100%. Consequently, as the waters become, this is a key description here, as the waters become like the blood of a dead man, all the creatures in the sea will die, is what we're told. Now, again, um, I do this kind of crazy research when I come to places like this, and if you're interested in what this might be like, go and look out a, comp a compilation of videos on YouTube that calls, that's, that's called Exploding Whales. 
And it's about these whales, ginormous whales, that will get beached on the shore and um, die. Or die and get washed up on the shore. Uh, I will just leave that with you for now. But if you've ever been walking along the bank of a river or along the beach or the shore of a beach and you found a dead animal, a rotting animal, um, you usually smell it way before you see it. Now, I've had the opportunity to be around roadkill. And um, mammals rotting away in the summer heat is nothing compared to sea life rotting away. It's something, it's just something different. Um, And it produces a rank and a putrid smell. And if you take into consideration that 71% of the Earth's surface is covered in water, imagine how bad all that rotting flesh is going to smell on a global on a on a global scale, but really the the smell is going to be the least of the concerns at this time as a result of this 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 judgment, and 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 um, and this is because um, in light of this judgment, there's going to be no good water to drink. It's going to be nearly impossible to find something to drink. There'll have to be some kind of purification, and I don't even know if that'll be possible at that time so there's going to be a foul smell then you're already going to have a loathsome and foul sore it's going to smell then you have the seas and the rivers giving up all of their dead and rotting flesh that's in them no drinking water nothing you can really bathe or clean in and furthermore in light of the fact that 75 million tons of fish are harvested each year from the oceans alone you can see how this judgment will also have a significant effect on the depletion of the world's food supply. Now, we know from Revelation chapter 8 that when the second and third trumpet judgments are sounded, that a third of all the waters will become like blood and become poisonous as a result of burning asteroids. It says mountains, flaming mountains coming down from the heavens and landing in the waters. But since we're not told about any more asteroids here in conjunction with these bold judgments, it's likely, if you try to think about this in in perhaps a common sense way, that the cosmic pollution that these asteroids will bring will will eventually spread from the one-third that they affect to the total. Now, whether that's this is a result of, the, of, the, of those judgments of the asteroids or this is a completely different thing, I don't know. It could be either way. But, but we know that all of the world's water supplies are connected somehow, that, 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 that they're connected either by underground aquifers or through, through the, the evaporation and the rain that comes down or the rivers that flow into the oceans and all of There's this connection. And, and really what, what I want you to see as we, we look at all this is that um, there's nothing that the inhabitants of the earth, there's nothing that they're going to be able to do at this time there's nothing in their power to stop what god who is all powerful is done and will continue to do there's this helplessness that's going to take them over and as we consider some of the similarities between these judgments and the first plagues recorded back in exodus chapter 7 that god brought against pharaoh and against the egyptian people if you remember um the first plague that's recorded in Exodus chapter 7 is against the Nile River. 
And the waters of the Nile River, um, which, which irrigated um, the, 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 the Egyptians' crops and gave them their drinking water, God turned that Nile into what? That water into, into blood. And you know what? When we study that out, we know that God did it for two reasons. Specifically, God did it for two reasons. And, and the first was is that he wanted them to know that he had power over what they worshipped. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. It was a life source for them. It was a God for them. And again, as God is unrestrainingly bringing forth judgment at this time, it's still intentional. He's going, listen, you have no power, and I have power over everything that you worship. And the truth is, is that's true even today, but people don't understand that. People don't realize that. But there is coming a time, just like there's come a time in our lives, personally, individually, where God's made that known to us, where there's nothing greater than Him. God is going to make that again known to these people at this time. That's not, there's nothing greater than Him. Nothing can stop Him. In addition to God demonstrating to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh that He had power over what they worshipped, God also had poisoned the Nile River because Pharaoh had previously murdered, if you remember, all the firstborn sons of the Israelites by drowning them in the, the Nile River. And by doing so, God was exercising his righteous judgment in a way that specifically was confronting these two evils. We see the same thing taking place in these judgments. They were worshiping a false god, and the Egyptians had murdered the innocent children. But we know that Pharaoh, if we see also the connection here, that Pharaoh did not relent, did he? He did not relent to the will of God. He hardened his heart over and over and over again. So God confronted this for a second time, specifically dealing with these kinds of um, intentional things. Not, he, he started with the first plague, but he ended with a tenth, if you remember. And that tenth and final plague, God sent an angel of death. And in doing so, the angel of death killed all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptian people. And because Pharaoh would not repent and once again harden his heart, also God, it tells us, gave him Pharaoh and the, and the Egyptian people their just due, what they deserved. And in light of this, and in light of God's wrath being poured about here in, a, in, a, in this prophetic account that we're reading of now, in, in light of God's wrath being poured out upon the waters of the earth during this time of tribulation, we see in the, the verses that, that, that follow here in chapter 16 that, 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 that follow the judgments that there's this angel, the angel of the waters, right? And he appears with his title to have been given some kind of charge even today that we don't see and understand completely, some kind of charge and protection over the waters of the earth. Well, this angel, this angel over the waters, he recognizes here what God has done, and his response is to give praise, to give praise to God for giving the Antichrist, it says, and his worshipers blood to drink, saying that it's specifically what in verse 6? It's their just 
do. And so in verse 5, as we read this, and it's, John says, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have, so here's the reason why, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Now, I know about you, I'm assuming you're just like me. I think we all as human nature, humans and have this, this human nature in us alongside the, the, the Holy Spirit and the nature of God, which is an awesome, wonderful thing. But truthfully, when we read this, I think it's fair to go, each one of us knows that true justice is when a person who has... Uh, 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 true justice is when a person has done to them the very same things that they have done to someone else, Right? Even unbelievers know this, and they have a word for it. It's called karma, right? And, and I, have, I have friends on Facebook and family members. I have this one family member that, that is constantly posting these things about karma, you know, where someone gets what's done to them, kind of like, <laughs> you know? Um, in fact, the Old Testament, in, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 25, 23 to 25, it, it, it tells us that biblical justice is exactly this, okay? Biblical justice is a life for a life, right? Getting what you have done to someone else, a, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, and a stripe for a stripe, and as this angel here points out and, and, and that the citizens of Satan's kingdom are bloodthirsty, having shed the blood of, of the saints and the prophets who refuse to worship Satan, we see that the angel points out for us here that it is fitting and just for them to drink these waters that are like the blood of a dead man. Furthermore, as a result of this, the angels of the waters' were words are words of praise. And by this, we once again see that, that when God is the one who is administering justice, when God's the one who's administering righteous justice, it's always praiseworthy. But I want to point out that if we find ourselves rejoicing, over the fact that someone has got what they deserve, we've crossed the line that the Bible warns us about. And why do I point that out? Because we have a tendency to do that. Curtis was telling me that there's a, a YouTube channel that is all about that. He says it's funny. <laughs> Only Curtis. I, I'm sure it is, but that's what it's, it appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our human nature. And listen to what God says. It says in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 through 18, it says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displeases him, and he turns away his wrath from him. So clearly we should never rejoice when someone is getting what they deserve, but we should remember that Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Do not repay evil with evil, right? And furthermore, Jesus said, Man, if someone strikes you on the cheek, that we're to turn the other cheek. See, there's biblical justice, but then there's grace. And we as citizens of God's kingdom are called 
to grace. And as Jesus went on to say, he said, if someone sues us seeking to take our coat, then we're to give him our shirt also. In fact, Jesus even said that we, the children of God, he said, we must love our enemies, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us, and pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. And the truth is, The truth is, is we want people to get what they deserve. That's what comes natural to us. That's what comes naturally to us. Not these things that Jesus instructs us of. These things that Jesus instructs us of, they're challenging. They're hard. But this is where we as Christians must follow Jesus' example. Not only did Jesus command it, he lived it. He exercised it. He's given it to us. And not only do we need to follow Jesus' example, the Bible tells us very clearly that we have to walk in the Spirit so that we do not fulfill the dire desires of the flesh. And the desires of the flesh is, is the one that goes, I sure hope they get what they have coming to them because they deserve it. Right? And we even struggle with rejoicing in that. But we must walk in the Holy Spirit, walk in the Spirit so we do not fulfill the desires of flesh. Because when someone gets what they deserve, just going to share it for myself, personally, um, my flesh experiences a little bit of delight on the inside. It may cause me to rejoice. You know, I'm going to be the first to admit that I, have a, I, I think that speed limit signs are suggestions. But when someone blows by me and, 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 you know, maybe runs me off the road and two miles down the road they're pulled over, there's probably a grin on my face as I drive by. But the Bible makes it really clear that that's not what we're called to. You see, and it goes even beyond that because when someone does something evil or an evil thing to us, um, not only we flesh in our flesh, this is where it can go, because not only do we maybe struggle with that rejoicing or the desire, but when someone does something evil against me, um, I don't want to just get even in my flesh. I don't want them to just get what they've done to me. More times than not, we want revenge, do we not? We want revenge. We want them to get more than what they've done to us. And the bottom line is, is we should never rejoice when we see judgment because it, God's made it clear throughout this book, even in last chapter, over and over and over again, that God does not even rejoice when he judges. God doesn't rejoice. But with that being said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with praising God for his righteous justice. The angel here does it. The saints will do it. Even there's nothing wrong with with praising God for His just and righteous nature, even if it comes a result of something that has been done against you. There's a difference. There's a distinction. And if you look at verse 7 with me, we see that this is example to us as we read about the tribulation saints who will eventually, it says, die as a result of having their heads cut off. They give praise to God for His what? His true and His righteous judgments. And in verse 8 we read, it says, Then the fourth 
angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Again, it's unrestrained, but in, in, intentional in, 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 its, in, its, in its direction. Poured out the bowl on the throne of the beast and on, his, and on his kingdom. And his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sorrows and did not repent of their deeds. So the judgments here of the fourth and the fifth bowls of wrath once again involve the heavens, similar as what we've previously read. And we've seen that they're similar to the, actually to the fourth and fifth trumpet judgments that we previously read about and had studied through, but clearly they're different in their effect. Specifically, in chapter 8, verse 12, it tells us that when the fourth and the uh, trumpet is sounded that a third of the sun, moon, and the stars will be struck, causing a third of the day and a third of the night to be lost. And that could be speaking specifically to that, meaning that our 24-hour day may be decreased to a 16-hour day, which would cause all kinds of environmental havoc. But this fourth, as this fourth bowl is poured out and, and, and on the sun, it says, basically what we're being told is it's going to burn in a way like it has never burned before, the sun. So, so much so, it says that the, that the men of the earth is scorched by its great heat. Now, here, who here has ever had a really bad sunburn? Like where it's blistered. I mean, it's like, I, th I think burn is the worst thing that can happen. You know, some people say, would you rather be burned or drowned? I'm like, I'll take drowning all day long. But n I mean, that's a gruesome thought all the way around, but... You know, a burn hurts for a long time afterwards. It just doesn't like you get burned and it's gone. I mean, it's, it lasts for a long time. And again, I want to I point out this in, in somewhat of a graphic detail because the Bible is wanting us to see this as a graphic thing. But the thing about it is, is there's probably two possible explanations for this scorching of the great heat of the sun. First could be something that we're already experiencing, where there's this depletion that we're being told by scientists, anyway, of the ozone layer of the earth, right? And th wh what I know is scientifically that the ozone layer of the earth filters out 93 to, to, to somewhat around 90% of the sun's UV light, depending upon where you're at on the globe. And, and this plague may be a depletion of the, the UV um, uh, or of the, of the ozone layer um, ability to, to, to block out UV light. And as a result, um, it may be a direct result of all of this cosmic uh, uh, um, uh, uh, catastrophic activity that's been taking place prior to this. And as a result, perhaps more of the UV light will be allowed through the, uh, from the sun and, and the earth and everything on it then will be scorched. I mean, that's what you get a burn from. It's not the, the actual heat of the sun, is it? It's the UV light that gives you the sunburn. The other possibility is that our sun would go nova, uh, a become a, a supernova. And when the sun, uh, when stars, as scientists and astronomers have, have, and astrologers have, or astronomers have viewed in, in other galaxies, is it, what that means is, is that it will intensify with its burning, and when it does so, it begins to expand in size. 
And, and if you don't know, if you know anything about the earth and its position to the sun, is that it's in a precise distance away from the sun to be able to sustain life. Any closer, and it would burn up. Any further away, and it would freeze. And, and, and as the sun begins to go nova and expand, um, the distance between it would, would change. Consequently, it would scorch the earth's surface from the heat of its fire. And, and this possibility is, is, a, is really it's a commonly occurring event that, that's observed by astronomers with other stars that are just like ours in other solar systems. Very, very much a reality, this judgment that we read about. But in any of these instances... The effect of the sun's increased fire, as we read here and we observe it, you can see as God's making it intentional upon who it's coming upon, Satan and his throne and his kingdom, it's intended to give those who are of Satan's kingdom a taste of what the fires of hell are going to be like. And this, is same, this same thing is true with the fifth bowl judgment as we're told that when the fifth bowl judgment is poured out that it is upon the throne of the beast and that his kingdom will be filled with darkness. Again, a taste or foretell of what hell is going to be like. And when the fifth trumpet is sounded, it says specifically that smoke will rise up from a bottomless pit and it will darken the sun. And according to Exodus chapter 10, when God sent the ninth plague upon the Egyptian, it was a plague of what? Anybody? The plague of darkness. And the interesting thing about that is, is that darkness, it says, it lasted for three days, but it was a darkness that could be felt. Satanic. Demonic. A darkness that could be felt. So this darkness that is described here with the fifth bull, it could be a literal blocking out of the sun's light, but the Greek word is interesting. The Greek word that is used here is the, is the word sokatos, and it specifically um, speaks of being filled with darkness. It's a filling, a, a filling up of darkness, and this could, so we could take this to mean a, 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 uh, a physical blindness, that maybe the inhabitants of the earth will all become blind, as a result of the UV light or of the intense heat, a physical blindness that takes place, a filling with darkness uh, that is attributed to the fourth bowl, or if we consider the nature, the spiritual nature of the people at this time in relationship to what we read in the book of Romans, we might see this to be a, um, a, a, a spiritual darkening, a darkening of the mind and just not an absence of light because the Bible talks about that, that people who reject God and reject God and reject God, eventually God, like he did with Pharaoh, allows for that heart to be hardened. Remember, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it gets to the point where it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the Bible tells us that there comes to a place in a person's life where they give themselves so over to sin that they harden their heart against God, that they harden their heart against God, that God gives them over to a, the Bible says, a debased mind to their lack of understanding, to their darkness. And so we can see that even being a possibility here, that there's, that there's going to be so, that it's going to be such a, a, an evil thing that God literally takes away the light and gives them over to the darkening of their mind. Now, clearly these bold judgments are a taste, and I want to point this out, of what hell is going to be like. As the Bible tells us, even through the words of Jesus Christ, that hell 
It's a real place, and it's a place of burning, a place of darkness, a place of pain, a torment where there is weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And here we see, if you'll look with me, that the effect of the burning, the effect of the, of the sores, the effect of the pain, the effect of the darkness um, is, is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here we see that all of these things, people, that says they literally begin to gnaw on their own tongues. I, I don't know. I, 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 would, I would say, because I'm, I'm kind of a wimp maybe, but I've been in a lot of pain different times. Um, I've broken my back. I've had other kinds of things happen to me, but never to the point where I was gnawing on my own tongue. I've been with my wife through the delivery of all of our children, and you ladies go through some pretty intense pain, but my wife wasn't gnawing on her tongue. I don't know what that's going to be like, but even more amazing, again, I note this, more amazing than all of this, guys, is that even with this foretaste of hell, okay, even with a foretaste of what hell's going to be like, the Bible says they will not repent of their deeds. Instead, they further harden their hearts against God and blaspheme Him. Literally, they speak evil, what that means, of the God of heaven. If Justin and the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end with this. They speak evil of the God of heaven. They know that it's God. And their response is to speak evil. And in verse 12, it says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up so that the, the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouths of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole, and the whole world to gather them together for the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming as a thief, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So the sixth and the seventh final bowl are really kind of brought together here. And the seventh bowl, as you, as you already remember from what we read, is about this great earthquake and, and this disruption of, of the earth's tectonic plates and mountains being brought down and islands drifting away and and it's just cataclysmic in every sense. But the sixth bowl of wrath, we're told, is bored out upon the, the river Euphrates. And, and, and this is allowing or a preparation for this final battle where the armies of the east are going to come down and meet. We know that the Antichrist, Satan, and the prophet are going to use their demonic powers to, to deceive and bring these, these kings into this battle. And in response to all of it, we see that the... the, 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 the um, um, of the, the river being dried up, the Satan will release demons to go throughout the earth to really bring it all together. Now, the word Armageddon, and we'll end with this, simply means mountain or city of Medjugo. And you may have heard about the Valley of Medjugo. And it refers to the actual place where this last battle, a literal battle, a real battle will be fought. And it will be fought between Jesus and the Antichrist. And the Bible teaches us that at this time, the armies of the Antichrist will gather together to, check, to attack Jerusalem. And as they stand, um, having surrounded Jerusalem, it tells us that at this point is when Jesus returns. Just when Satan thinks he's going he's gonna to defeat God's people and he's going he's gonna to take, take out 
take out all of God's plans just like he thought he was doing when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And it says that Jesus tricked him, basically. That he showed himself through death to have victory. And Jesus, according to the prophecies and the promises found in Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 14, Zephaniah 3, verse 8, Zechariah chapter 12, and Isaiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, are just a few of the prophecies and promises. It tells us that Jesus, at this time, in this place, will return. He will return to save Jerusalem from these armies, and he will once and for all deliver the world from Satan and his kingdom. And this is um, why we read um, of these promises of Jesus and, uh, 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 and his assurances from his own words in verse 15, where Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming. Be prepared. Be ready. And you and I aren't looking for this, as I've already explained to you. Remember, you and I are looking for an event called the rapture of the church, where Jesus is going to return, it says, in the clouds, where we'll be caught up with him. A specific, different situation. And you and I will be free from these things. But yet, the Bible still tells us in the same kind of light to be ready, to be prepared, to be looking, to be living expectantly. And I would challenge you again this morning, in light of what we read that's going to be going on here, that part of the expectancy that we're called to is to be light, to be salt, to be witnesses of our faith, to be sharing, to be teaching, to be telling of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Because today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. And there are lots of people who are filled with regret and sorrow because of the decisions that they made, because of the life that they're living, because of the rebellion to Jesus Christ. And you know what? Today, it's not too late for them. It's not too late today. But there is coming a time, clearly, we read from this chapter one, it will be too late. And part of that expectancy that we're supposed to be living with as we are looking for our Savior's joyous return, part of that expectancy is to tell people it's not too late. You see, I lived a life, and many of you did also, you lived a life where you had done things that you knew were not right, where you had done things that you thought, man, how can God ever forgive me? It's too late. I've done it. I'm lost. I'm forsaken. I'm damned. But God's a God of grace. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. And God has this gift of grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful thing. And the way that people know this is when we show them grace, is when we tell about the stories of grace that we've received. Be ministers of God's grace. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, help us, God, to be your ministers of grace, to show people love and compassion and hope. Those who don't deserve it, Lord, just like you've shown us. Fathers, we worship you with this last song. God, I pray that we would reflect in, in those relationships that we have and where we can be forgiving and gracious and maybe, God, times where we haven't or things that we need to go make right. I pray, God, that we wouldn't hesitate, that we wouldn't waste time, that we would redeem what you've given to us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you guys please stand?